Before we do that, let's pray once more. Father, Lord, it is the privilege we have to be here together. And as Stephen prayed through our particular requests, Lord, as a church, Lord, we have many things that are hidden uh, between our own minds, our own ears, Lord, or within our own families or marriages. And Father, we come here because we know that you have all blessing that comes from your hands. Father, we ask for generally some of the most uh, significant prayers we could ask for, that we would be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might. Lord, you have given us, through Jesus Christ, tremendous access uh, to power. Many people want power. Many people long for power. And we have been given power according to your glorious might. Power that is endless, as we are connected to the one true and mighty God. But Father, we know that the power you give us, according to your glorious might, is for our endurance in this life, for our patience, for our joy, for giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. At least that's how Paul mentioned it in his letter. Lord, that we are to endure in this life and that you will not leave us or let us go, that we have all power according to your glorious might to fulfill our walk with you. Lord, to be faithful to the end, to walk in this life and to see your face and to be enthralled by your grace and your love. Lord, that we be filled with the knowledge of the fullness of God. That is for us in Christ. Father, we pray that you would remove any parts of us, Lord, that are not in accordance with your glorious light. Lord, we pray that you would mature us, that we would be adult believers, not small children, Lord, but that we would be equipped and mature in Jesus Christ, Lord. We thank you for bringing us together as a church that we might love one another. Lord, we thank you that you have given us the tools here within this particular church to be sharpened and shaped by one another, that this is actually your working hand in our lives, Lord. And Lord, here now we submit to the one sharp sword, which is your word. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us and impress upon us the sharpness, the impressionable nature of this word, Lord, that it would mold us and cut us and shape us into the image of your glorious Son, Lord, that we would come to see the completeness of Jesus Christ, that he is everything. And that we would submit all of our anything to his everything. That we realize that he is the firstborn and he has all inheritance rights to everything in this world, Lord. We thank you. We thank you. Lord Jesus Christ, we ask for your grace by your very powerful and mighty name. Amen. Amen. The, um, the passage here today is Colossians uh, 1. We're working through a uh, part of the first chapter here. Uh, in Colossians 1, picking up at verse 15, this is uh, Paul describing Jesus particularly as uh, Lord, but Lord in two particular ways uh, that are helpful uh, for us to see and understand today. He is Lord of creation, and he's also Lord of redemption. That if we could see Jesus this way uh, this morning, that we see him over all of creation and over all of recreation, redemption, if we see him in those two categories, 
we will come to a knowledge of him that is liberating, freeing, that changes your whole life. Here is his word to them. In his letter, he writes, speaking of Jesus, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There is Paul describing Jesus as Lord of creation. And now he speaks about redemption. And you also, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. We've been speaking about the two ditches on the road in our Christian life as we walk with Jesus Christ. You can dip to the left or dip to the right, and we defined those ditches before, as two very deep ditches you could get stuck into for a very long time, actually. And it can ruin your life uh, and your walk with Jesus Christ in remarkable ways. One is uh, legalism, and the other is lawlessness. So on one side of the ditch, you can have a legalistic type of mindset in which you are very rigid and calibrating in your relationship to the one true and living God. And you are... uh, Maybe you wouldn't say this, none of us would ever say, we're seeking to be right with God based on our works, but you live as though you're right with God based on your works. Those are two separate realities. And also the other ditch to fall into is lawlessness, or what's called antinomianism, is the $5 word. It just means anti is opposed and nomos is law. It means you're opposed to God's law, that you actually... Uh, live a life that is lawless, a life that you say, it's all of grace, I'm saved by God's grace, and therefore, I do whatever I want. That, that also is another ditch to fall into. The solution to this, and the beauty of what we have here in this letter from the Colossians, is the center of the road, staying the course, and seeing Jesus Christ for who he really is. The completeness, what he actually offers in your life. To see the complete Christ who is full of grace and truth. We realize that both of these 
ditches actually have the same problem, which is not knowing Jesus. Not knowing him the way he should be known. The same root is that we've separated the law from the Lord. We've separated our moral type of living, our Christian type of living, our law, from the actual Lord. The, the, the reason we are Christians is because of Christ. We separate Christ from his commandments. You have the commandments of Jesus, and the way you relate to those commandments could be very legalistic, or they could be very lawless. If you separate those commandments from Christ, if you look at them as not the personal words given to you by Jesus Christ, who is full of grace and truth, and you look at those commandments as just rigid commandments, yes, they come from Jesus, but they're kind of removed from Jesus three or four steps, so you just kind of see them as this thing you have to wrestle with. Either I have to put my life in perfect moral obedience to God, which will make me very rigid of a person if I feel like I can fail and what could happen to me. Or it's too much for me to bear and so I just cut the corners. And so I just become a little more lawless and a little less rigid and not take God's word, his commandments to me so seriously. And then I look at other Christians and be like, oh, that church there, they're legalistic. Or that person there is, is a little too uh, rigid. Both problems stem from just not seeing the beauty and the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. This is all possible and able to be avoided. Now, to make a perfect example on this, and this will be one that will be so relevant to your mind, uh, you'll know, know immediately why I went here, is uh, one law, we'll just say one commandment. See if you're legalistic. Uh, you know, you could flip a lot of places. Exodus twenty-two, nineteen says this, You shall not boil... A young goat, someone knows, and his mother's milk. You say, I'm going to check your fridge later today. A little legalistic, puritanical of me. You're like, can you believe they were boiling a goat in the backyard and milk? Um, that is a law. That's God's law. Are you legalistic? You think about that one, right? Well, uh, maybe you haven't been tempted that way. But that actually is a law. Why? This, this is illustrative of where we are in our mind, in our relationship to God. It's a, it's a natural law. It's, it's a proverbial law. It, it's saying that a source of life should not be a source of death. So a mother's milk is a source of life for a young goat. A young uh, baby goat needs the goat milk of its mother. And there's a law. God, God is like that. There's a law. Don't do that. Don't, no, don't do that. But that. Whatever is nourishing for life should not be used to actually take a life or to cause death or harm. So it's a law that's proverbially abstracted to say there is a natural rightness to life. And, and don't even in your own way you function in life contradict that even in your uh, manners or customs or culture. Don't, don't mess with that. The right to life. Right? See, Romans 2 says, Gentiles, those who have not read Exodus twenty two nineteen, and maybe many of you here have never been bothered or tempted toward legalism of being particularly scrupulous with your goat milk, but 
The principle, I just said that principle though, and you all were immediately saying, yes, I get it. I get why that's there now, right? Because it is true that the mother or the source of life should nourish life and not take life. And we find that everywhere in this world. So Romans 2 says, those who have never read Exodus 22 do not have the law, but by nature do what the law requires because they show the work of the law in themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law written on their hearts while their conscience either accuses them or excuses them. That, that, you, you see the back and forth there in the ditch? It could either accuse you or excuse you, right? The principles, the law, your conscience, the law written on your heart, and your conscience either bears witness to that, either accusing you or excusing you. This is the constant navigation of your life. We are moral beings. This is our moral thought life. You cannot avoid that. Read the Bible or don't read the Bible. It's written on your heart. Your conscience bears witness to it that you know you can accuse yourself, that you violate your moral conscience every day, and sometimes you can even excuse yourself and make uh, license or freedom for why you should not be so hard on your conscience or your mind. You see how that matches? You could be accusatory toward yourself so much so that you are destroying your own spiritual life. You're legalistic. Or you could give yourself so much excuse that you could literally get away with anything because it's all of grace and then you become lawless. These are the ways... Paul says in Romans 2, everybody, Buddhist, Sikh, Muslim, atheist, or someone who's reading Exodus 22, 19, they, we all have to deal with our moral mind this way. We either fall into the trap of accusing ourselves, or we fall into the trap of excusing ourselves. But the reality is that we are not the judges of ourselves, so what we think about ourselves actually doesn't matter. Paul says in Corinthians, if my conscience is free, what does it matter to me? Because I could still be guilty. If you think you're not guilty, that doesn't mean you are not guilty. And if you think you are guilty, that doesn't actually mean that you are guilty. The only thing that matters is Jesus. He goes on in Romans 2, which I don't even have in my notes, but the reality that he ends by saying, when according to my gospel... God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. By Christ Jesus. That's the only judgment that matters. Your moral conscience, your legalistic tendencies or lawless tendencies are irrelevant. And to get away from being stuck in that rut is to see the Lord Jesus Christ for who he really is. So Paul has this purpose in mind to free the Colossian church and us with them this morning. When I was uh, driving only a few weeks ago, um, my car uh, got a, 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 a nail in the, in the front uh, left tire. And uh, it, was, it was one of those, those leaks that was very slow. And I drove around for maybe a month or so like that. And I just would fill it up a little bit with air. I'd be like, I'm sure I get just checked out. But the reality was the air would slowly leak and uh, the, the tire would cause the car to lean left. 
So if I'm driving down the road, you've all probably had this experience when you're driving your car and your tires are out of alignment or whatnot, and that steering wheel is going this. And you're like, you just can't get your steering wheel to just want to go straight because something's wrong. And you have a proclivity, your car has a tendency to lean into one of the sides of the gutters of the road. Do you tend toward, do you tend toward lawlessness? Do you, do you tend toward being legalistic? See, our sins are like nails, sharp pricks upon our conscience. And they alter you. The, the, what you do with your sins alters you. It creates idiosyncratic behavior upon you. It creates what we call, that's his personality. Maybe, maybe it's because he's legalistic. Maybe, or maybe because he's just lawless and he hasn't dealt with his sin. That's why he's so weird. See, predispose or lean your tire, the tire of your mind is leaning you toward one of these ditches if you're not dealing with your sin that way. We must most regularly have to check our tires, kick the tires. Hebrews 3.13 says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And that's the problem with sin, is you don't know it's deceitful, how much it's messing you up. If you knew that, it wouldn't be deceitful. You don't know that you're leaning into one of these ditches. You don't know that you're not dealing with your sin and taking them to Christ overtly. You don't just take a sin in your life and then just say, oh, well, Jesus kind of dealt with that and never really think about it, deal with it, get on your knees before it and give it to Christ consciously, intentionally with your own mind. That, that's how you just drive around with nails all the time in the back of your conscience. Give it away. Go center of Jesus, and that is the only way to stay on the road. One time uh, this week, I was asking a friend um, if uh, they attended uh, in their own uh, evaluation of themselves, if they tended to be a little more legalistic, a little more rigid with God's law, excessive, and finding their own rightness and, and moral value based on their performance, or if they tended maybe to be a little more lawless. Uh, that they, they were pretty uh, fast and loose with anything God might want of their life, and they don't really think so much about that because it bothers them, so they just throw it all away. Uh, and they, they responded, which I thought was, was helpful. They said that, uh, you know, I tend to be probably a little bit more on the lawless side. If things are going poorly in my life, I'll, I'll tend to not take God's word so seriously and just go do my own thing and, and, and such. And then, of course, the, the, the way these conversations go, it's kind of fair game, the person asked me, well, what do you think you tend toward? And then, of course, I said, what do you think I tend toward? <laughs> because honestly, I'm a te we're terrible evaluators of ourselves. Obviously, someone else can see the, the, the log in my own eye quicker than I can, perhaps. And so I asked them, you know me fairly well, which way do you think my ditch would go? Do I lean to legalism or, or lawlessness? And uh, they, they responded and said, I think you might, you might if, if, if all things considered, lean a little legalistic. And I said, that's exactly what a lawless person would say. I kind of completely dismissed them and took up the higher hand and said I was better than them and self-righteous and uh, proved their point perfectly. No, but that, that's true. That's, uh, that's true. We don't know where we tend. But think about that. I ask you that question. Where do you tend? 
Do you tend to be a little legalistic if you lose sight of Christ? Do you tend to be a little lawless if you lose sight of Christ? The Colossian church was tempted, from what we can tell in the letter, toward legalism. Colossians 2, 20, 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is if you were still alive in this world, do you submit to regulations and do not handle and do not taste and do not touch according to human precept and teaching? These have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, but have no value in actually stopping the indulgence of the flesh. See, self-made religion, legalism, human laws, fencing all the other things God says. So if God says, um, you know, don't do one particular type of sin, that also includes not dancing and smiling, right? Going extra further than the law, self-made religion, it has the appearance of looking godly. It has the appearance of being more devout. But actually, it has no way of hindering the indulgence of the flesh, that is, the old sinful nature. Both a lawless person out um, carousing on the town and a legalistic person having self-righteous, frustrating, pointy-nosed thoughts about everyone else and how they're better, equally sinful before God. They both have no ability to actually deal with the flesh, the old sinful man, the sinful nature. This is missing uh, the greatness of God in Jesus Christ. Many man-made religions fear whatever might be called God, self-made religions, because you look around the whole world and you realize there's something powerful that made all this. So Paul, in his wisdom, decides to address this legalistic church, this Colossian church, that way, by first exalting Jesus Christ as the absolute Lord of creation, and then, and then swiftly moving in to show him as the Lord of redemption, that he might be able to pull the nails out of their tires, to get the pricky thorns out of their riddled conscience, the only way to do that is to look straight to Jesus. And so he demonstrates Jesus this way as Lord of creation. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Firstborn of all creation. Has to do with order and honor. Jesus Christ is Firstborn in the sense that he is above everything. Not in the sense that necessarily he was created. And then he goes on to describe him Lord of holy space and time. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Holy space, holy time. How is God over all of creation? Space and time. Not just space and time that you and I experience. But everything. Holy space and holy time. That is Space that is unaccounted for, invisible, unseen. And then time that, before there was time, he was in that time. Right? This is how preeminent, supreme Jesus Christ is. And there is no superlative, there is no greater way to describe Jesus than how Paul does here. He speaks about Jesus being over all of space and even holy space. The phrase is this, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. That's every space of realm that God has ever made. And then he clarifies just to make certain. He says the visible and the invisible. 
That is, everything you see and know, and then all of the highest heavens, the heavenly of the heavens, the invisible realm. He has made it all. He is not just an angel or created angel. He made the realm in which angels fly. And he goes on to express that in the phrase, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. These aren't just talking about the IRS and the League of Nations. Most scholars interpret this to refer to a spiritual League of Nations. There's other spiritual beings. There are angelic and demonic forces in the world of which many are tempted to worship and which many false religions are the origin of these types of creatures. He describes them in geographical or jurisdictional terms that they have thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities that this unseen place, the invisible, the spiritual place also has spiritual beings and Jesus Christ is over them. He made them all. There's three places to show where this makes sense. What is uh, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities? The beginning of the scripture started with everybody in one place in the garden. One man, one woman. And then a lot of people from all the nations decided to make a very big tower called Babel. And they wanted to reach the heavens. God dispersed them and disowned them and sent them in all different directions. The Jewish idea of this, why this happened this way, is in Deuteronomy 4. It says in Deuteronomy 4, three verses I want to look at. Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 32, and then Acts 17. This is going to open up or lock, unlock this phrase of thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. What is Paul talking about? What is he, as, as, as a Jewish scribe that he is, the way he views himself as a Jew and every other nation as being Gentile and apart from the one true God. What does he mean by that phrase? Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. The first part of the answer is Deuteronomy 4. 19 to 20, the people were told not to look at the sun and the moon and the stars and the hosts of heaven, lest they be drawn away to bow down and serve them and worship them. And then it says this remarkable phrase. These things the Lord has allotted, given, allotted to all the other peoples in the world. You hear that? God gave all the other peoples in the world over to their futility of mind to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. He gave them up. Go, worship the sun, moon, stars, and all the demons behind them. All the spiritual beings that like that kind of worship. The thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. That same book in Deuteronomy toward the end. In chapter 32, 8. This is picked up again. It says the most high God gave the nations, all the others, all the Gentiles in the world. Their inheritance. And what is their inheritance? He divided mankind and fixed the borders of all the peoples. All the nations and geographic regions. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Real physical realm. Russia, China, every nation that is, every city. The, there's jurisdictions, there's abilities. God lets kingdoms and domains of men extend and ebb and flow based on his command and his, his choosing. That all of them are delineated. All the nations of the world are given a certain portion of the world to live on. But then, this is the invisible. This is the holy space, not just the common space. That Lord, the Lord was over, not only that, 
He divided mankind and fixed his borders of all the peoples according to the number, it says in Deuteronomy 32, of the sons of God. That is, in relation to all of these geographic regions of what might be Babylon, Assyria, and Russia, and America, there also were sons of God allotted to all of that. Many scholars interpret that to be spiritual beings, angels, demons. That they actually are related to the spiritual powers, authorities, thrones, and dominions of this world. And just as there are allotted portions for humanity, there are allotted portions for these angelic beings. And Paul, preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ, enters into the center of pagan worship in Athens, in Acts 17. And comes back to the nations that were pushed away, They were given over to worshiping principalities and powers and rulers and authorities. And he says in Athens, we are all his offspring. He quotes one of their own prophets, Eratus. And he says, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. And he has commanded all people everywhere to repent. For he's fixed a day in which he would judge the world by the man he has raised from the dead, Jesus So Paul takes what he sees in Jesus, the firstborn son of God, and brings him in right to the center of Mars Hill, the Areopagus, the place where all the statues and all the idols and all the pagan worship of all the nations before that were disinherited from Deuteronomy 4 and 32. And he walks right back in to their cult worship and says, He has come. The true son of God is here. He is raised from the dead and he has overlooked all of your ignorance. All of your false religion and worship, your legalism or your lawlessness. He has let it all go and he's commanding everyone here now, all you Athenians, repent and believe. For he has fixed a day in which you will judge the world by the man he has raised from the dead. That is what's going on in Paul's letter to the Colossians now. The same thing he was preaching to the Athenians. Is he saying, stop it. Stop looking to other things. There is only one Jesus Christ. And so he's showing him to be above it all. All things, we're told, were created through him and for him. Through him and for him. This is what it means to be the firstborn son of God. That they were made through him. Not the bornness of the firstborn son of God is not the point. Jesus was not born. He was not created. For all things were created through him. If all things were created through him, then there's nothing that's created That was before him. Jesus is not created. If all things are created by him, he is an uncreated being. He is co-eternal, co-equal with the Father. All things are created through him and for him. The firstborn gets it all. The firstborn has inheritance rights. The reason he's firstborn of all creation is saying everything in this world belongs to him. It was made through him to return back to him in praise. And everyone took everything he made and worshipped it and bowed down to it. And even angelic demonic forces lusted after that worship that was not their own. And therefore, he is coming back to get what has been stolen. That he will, everything he made will come back to him in praise and honor and glory. And every knee will bow down to Jesus Christ and profess that he is Lord of all. This is what Paul is saying. Do not turn back to idols. 
Do not bow down to your slave masters. If you feel legalistic, if you feel bothered by your conscience, you are enslaved. You must be set free. And the only one who sets you free is Jesus Christ, who is the one who made it all and the only one who deserves your worship. The only one who gave you breath and life and lungs should actually have that returned back to him in praise. Everyone else that receives that is robbing God. Robbing God. And dare you get into that conspiracy. Dare you give anyone anything that does not rightfully belong to them. And outside of Christ, nothing belongs to anybody. He is the firstborn of creation. He holds the atoms together. All things were made through him. And he is before all things. Now this is the time. Not only holy space, but holy time. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Before there were things, there was Christ. Before there was time as you and I know it, measured by the stars and motion, and the sun coming up and down, and the moon rising. Before there was that time, which is only relation to the change in variableness of physical reality, physical time, before all things. Holy time. Time that boggles the mind. Time that has no relation to anything else. Jesus was in that time. He was dwelling in that time. He is before all things. Not even was before all things. He is omnipresent in the sense that he was there and is still there before there was time. He is that kind of Christ. He is before all things. In holy time. And now even in this moment you think well that's so transcendent and distant and far and removed. What does it mean that Jesus was before all things? Oh don't worry about it because he's holding everything right now together in this moment. So he's very abstract and transcendent. But he is right now keeping everything together. He is presently by the power of his word maintaining. So he holds the atoms together. He holds molecular bonding together. And he holds your very life together. This, Paul says, is the Lord of creation. And that's a scary thought. People who have thought about these things will riddle their brain. Either being afraid of a God who has so much control. Many problems that bother us are just facing the existential fact of our own contingency. Our life is what? Our life is one bus accident away, one vapor, one cancer, one cut. And then doesn't it bother you if you want to be completely lawless and free to realize that he upholds all things, that your life at this very moment is being maintained by him and not you? That could bother you. It could lead you to be very legalistic. It could lead you to be very lawless. Or, and here's Paul's beautiful answer. As a great surgeon, he brings them to the right solution and cuts open the cancer and finds the malady. But he points them to Jesus Christ, not only as Lord of creation, but Lord of redemption. The one who holds the atoms. The one who holds your life is more loving 
than you could imagine. You don't love like this, and you've never seen anyone love like this. And so therefore, someone in this realm of existence that has all authority and power and upholds all things is a scary thought. And if he were like us, we must be very legalistic and toe the line, lest he pull our atoms apart. Or if he is like us, we better be pretty lawless because his words are not for our good. He's probably self-seeking and self-glorifying and not as loving as we wish. But praise God. He's not like us. Not only does he hold all things. And he could do anything to you beyond your imagination. But his love is beyond your imagination. This is what cuts all that nastiness out of our souls. The supremacy of Christ as being not only Lord of creation, but Lord of redemption. Paul says that he is the head of the body, the church. That is, the new creation. Those who are born again. Those who are redeemed. Those who will begin the new work of God's new creation. Born out of love. Born by his own blood. Born by his own death. He is the head of that too. Too. Not less, but in addition. He is head of everything, of all creation that could ever be named. But then there's also inside of this creation that is wrecked and riddled with corruption and despair. There is a new creation, a seed that he is forming. And he also is head of that. And everyone in that creation has entered through the doors of love. And above that door is smeared blood of Christ. And that is just beautiful. And when you walk through that door, you can't be legalistic. And you can't be lawless if he would shed his own blood for you. You obey every word he has for you. How could you not if he'd give his own son for you? Lawlessness, legalism, it washes away as you are cleansed by the blood and you enter into the church, the new creation. He is the beginning again now, of a new beginning. The firstborn, not of creation, now Paul says, the firstborn from the dead. That is in his resurrection, by virtue of his resurrection, he has risen into a new order of being. He is a new humanity. He is the first fruits of which you and I will eventually partake. That he is the firstborn from the dead. So that in everything, not only in creation, but even in redemption, he will be preeminent. He will be preeminent. There will be no one to challenge him. There will be no angel. There will be no demon. There will be no false worship. And there will be no rebellious human in the face of all creation, whether it be holy order or natural order, that could ever say he is not the best. He will get that again. That in everything he will be preeminent in him. Paul says all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And why? Why did he come down here with us? That through him it's for you. He came down that through him he might reconcile to himself all things. This world is divided and broken. And everyone is running from the one true Lord. And he will not have that. He came to bring everything back to his son. Whether on earth or in heaven, 
He has done it by making peace through his blood on the cross. And that is the antidote to it all. That it is his peace that he makes to you. Not by forcing the molecules of your body, which he could do. They are held and maintained by his hand now. But he will draw you, not by his preeminent force over all creation. That is keeping the wave breakers against the eastern and western coast right now. By gravitational force. He does that in his moment. He maintains my strength to even preach this word to you. And he maintains your life to even sit there conscious to hear. But he'll do this by one particular thing. An act of love. That he would choose to reconcile the world with none other than the blood of his own firstborn son. He will be the firstborn of redemption. The firstborn from the dead. That there we're told that we were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. You know, you know yourself. If that is your verse, put yourself there and then keep reading. You were alienated. You were far from him. You were not eager to do his will. You were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled us by the body of his flesh, by his dead, to present you. Hear this. Let this fall on you. To present you holy, blameless, and without reproach. Without reproach. Holy, blameless, he will send you to the highest heavens, present you before the heavenly throne, and say, this person is holy, he is blameless, no one may ever say anything against you, and you have no reproach, you have not one thing to be picked at. There is not one point that can be pointed. This is how he brings us into his family. The family. The church. The new creation. Different rules different order, completely different thing in this world. The time we have, I want to draw your attention to a family that Jesus describes for us. He describes a family that had problems. There were two sons in this family. One of the sons was very legalistic and one of them was very lawless. But they were both separated from their father. And they were both lost. The younger son was a lawless son. He came to his father and he said to him, Father, give me my inheritance, what is coming to me, that I might go. And the father gave him everything that was due him before his father's passing, wishing his own father to be dead. He squandered everything. He was a prodigal son. He spent it all in reckless living. He had no relationship with his father. And he didn't trust his own father's goodness and wanted to be away and out of the house. A famine came and this son had nothing and no money left. He gave himself to be a slave now. He once was a son, now he's a slave. He has no freedoms. He once had great privilege and liberty. Now he's a slave and he's tempted to even be eating pods from the pigs that he serves his master with. And he comes to himself And this lawless son in Luke 15, we're told in the verse, he came to himself. This lawless person reasoned within his own mind and what was in there, a legalist. 
He reasoned to himself and said, You know what? It's hard for me here. I could be treated better in my father's house if I was even a slave. Here's what I'll say to my father. Here's what I'll say. This lawless person went straight to being a legalist because they're both the same thing. Father, he's going to say, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm not worthy. Merit, worthiness, right, legalist. I'm not, he's relating to his father again, even in his own mind, as a legalist. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Oh, just treat me as one of your slaves. That's what I'm worthy of. He cannot help but relate to his own father on his worthiness, on his merit or his demerit. But it must be because he's worthy or not worthy. He went from being a complete lawless son to being a rigid legalist son. And so he repents and comes to his father. And his father sees him from a far way away, felt compassion on him, ran and embraced him and kissed him. And then he began his words. Father, I've sinned against heaven. And I'm not worthy to be called your son. Pause. Nothing. Doesn't even get to the next word. His son embraces him, kisses him. Says, put the robe on his shoulders. Put the sandals on his feet. Put the ring on his hand. This son who is dead to me is now alive. The one who was lost is now found. He made him holy, blameless, and above reproach. Immediately, not even one servant in all his father's house will ever see his own son covered in rags. Demonstrating poverty. He only looks to be rich. He came home for the first minute. And before he even gets to the house, he's clothed like a king. What was he worthy of? There's two sons. The legalistic son is in the field, we're told, and he's working. Legalistic people love working. Just love it. Work, 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 work. And he drew near to the house. Notice he's not really in the house with his father. And he heard music and dancing. Music and dancing. Come on. That's really close to fornication. And he's not very happy about that either, as you'd imagine. And he said, what is this? And his servant said, your brother has come back and your father's killed the fatted calf. Oh, the legalist didn't like that. He goes to his father, refuses to come in, that is, refuses. Still, the other son ran away and was distanced from his father. The legalistic son is very close to his father, but just as distant. Doesn't understand his father at all. He refuses to come in. The legalistic son then speaks to his father as his father comes out of the party and says, Why will you not come in? He says, These many years I have served you, I obey the law. I've served you. I've never disobeyed any of your commandments. And you've never even given me one celebration to eat a calf or a goat with my friends. How amazing is that? The father responds and says, son, everything I have is yours. Implying, why did you just ask? You could have had a party with your friends. Who do you think I am? The legalistic son is closer to the father in appearance 
just is removed relationally. Doesn't even know the generosity of his father. Doesn't even know the grace of God. Doesn't even know he could just ask to have a big party with his friends. Who do you think I am? Of course I would give you a cup. You've never asked. You've only been in the field working and trying to stay away from music. You're a legalistic son. Now here are you. Are you who are you? Do you read your Bible, go to church? Are you close? Do you appear to be close? Are you near God in some way? Do you go to church and tuck your shirt in? This son lived with him and never knew the generosity and grace that comes only through a full knowledge of the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The face of Jesus Christ. Dear Father God, we thank you that even though we might tuck our shirt in, we might look the part, Lord, all that matters, all that matters is you, Jesus. Lord, we pray through this prayer you would hear us. And Lord, we ask that you would be very present in this church. That your beauty and grace would be so clear before our minds. That we would be a perfect oxymoron. We would be the most holy, committed, devout, blameless followers of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, the most gracious, hospitable, generous believers of Jesus Christ that this world could see. Lord, the only way to do that is if you would show us and cover us in your blood. In Jesus' name, amen.